I think that the teaching of the word is one of the most powerful things that's out there. And that's just to, I get called a pragmatic sometimes and I'm all right with that because I am, I am pretty pragmatic. But like, if this is the thing that a, we know we're called to do that's so important. And this is the thing that people are sacred. I mean, if there's this budget item, that's this much, then how are we being faithful stewards to our congregations and how are we being faithful to our call, faithful to spirit? If this thing that should be one of the most important things for us ends up getting 15 minute bursts throughout the week, and then we become unfaithful to our family and our loved ones on Saturdays as we try to hustle out something like that. So I think a lot of product is like, okay, how do we make the time and defend these handful of things that to us are extremely important? Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 222, 222. I'm your host, Mike Neglia, and the voice that you just heard is our our guest for the week, uh, Reverend Chad Brooks. Chad and I have, I think, a, a really great conversation about the difference between uh, false productivity, which is just hustle culture and getting things done and cranking out a lot of content and real, true, actual Jesus-based productivity, abiding in the vine and allowing fruit to come through our life, our ministry, and specifically our preaching, since that's the focus of this podcast. Uh, We talk about the difference between just doing more things and doing things well. So I believe you're really going to enjoy this conversation. I certainly did as well. Uh, Be sure to check out the show notes uh, for links to Chad's podcast, The Productive Pastor, as well as lots of resources that were mentioned in this conversation. Right before the episode starts, let me just say that October 14th and 15th, uh, those are the confirmed dates for our next in-person Preachers training event taking place in Boise, Idaho at Calvary Boise. So October 14th and 15th, mark your calendar, check expositorscollective.com for details on how you can sign up early, how you can promote this to the preachers or Bible teachers in your life. You'll be hearing about this more in future episodes but I'm going to get out of your way and let you hear me and Chad Brooks talk about true and false pastoral productivity. All right. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. Uh, This week, we're talking to the Reverend Chad Brooks. You may know him as the host of the Productive Pastor Podcast, Um, but uh, he's our current Expositors Collective uh, Preacher of the Week. How you doing, Chad? (laughs) I'm doing good. I didn't realize I was preacher of the week. So. Well, I, I just made that term up actually. So oh, okay, cool. Is there a parking space involved somewhere? A digital parking. Sp- yeah, it's, it's an NFT in the metaverse. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, Chad, why don't you help us to get to know you a little bit? Uh, the first question always is like, what was your first time ever preaching? I find it's kind of a great way to kind of get to know someone's story a little bit. So what was your first time preaching? So I, I don't know if it was, I can't remember which one time it was, but I gave the first sermon three times, probably the first three times I had to preach anywhere. And it was horrible all three times because oh, I didn't oh, know what I was doing, okay. <laughs> which is weird. Like my dad's a preacher. Um, I grew up under, my dad's a great preacher. Uh, and then uh, he's been at the same church for 40 something years. The senior pastor before him was there for 25. They're both fantastic preachers. And I didn't know what I was doing. And so I just, I took, I actually found it. I dug around on my bookshelves at home, but I had this Charles Swindoll devotional yeah. from my mom. Yeah. And I just like picked a story out of it that sounded cool and fumbled my way through. I was either uh, at the first church I ever served as a part-time youth minister in college. Uh, I might've been at a campus ministry event, or I also gave the talk at this retreat. So I can't remember which one was the first time is all three messages. And they all failed horribly. Um, but I I managed to uh, recover. I spent a year in college ministry before seminary. And I I thought before then um, that the rest, my whole career was going to be, I knew I was going to work in church, but I thought I would be a technical director at some big, huge church in Texas, like overseeing their AVL. And I show up to this internship the first day 
that had been offered and my wife still had a year of college left. So I thought that they needed a sound person for a year and this mm-hmm. was a good way for them to fix that. And I got there the first day and uh, my boss, Scott Wright, uh, was just this looming discipleship figure in my life. The first day I walked in the door, he was waiting on me. He said, you're not going to touch a video camera or a soundboard for six months. There's other things that you're going to figure out how to do. And I left after that year, year and a half, yeah. really feeling called to a teaching ministry, went to yeah. seminary, and luckily had the ability to preach in seminary a lot through churches I was at, churches I worked at. Um, I went to Asbury in Wilmore, Kentucky, um, had the ability and privilege to speak during our primary chapel services a couple of times there. Okay. And I ran the chapel while I was there. So I just like got surrounded by preaching and it was really weird in central Kentucky because Southern seminary with Southern Baptist church was an hour away in Louisville. Uh, Asbury at the time was the largest non-denominational seminary in the world. And then there was three or four seminaries right down the road in Lexington. So no matter how small the church was, they were used to like heavy seminary preaching. Mm, okay. And so I, I, I came of age with the graciousness of a lot of people that were older than me and listened and let me, let me fail miserably. Yeah. Okay. Cause I was learning. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. I, I got some follow-up questions. Okay. Okay. All right. The first time you preached, it went horrible. Yeah. And then why did you try the same sermon again? And then the follow-up question to that is, why did you try it a third time? Because it was, it was. I think it was done, and I didn't know what I was doing. Uh-huh. And then, like, I'm sure the fourth sermon I preached, the first time <laughs> I actually preached, preached at the campus ministry I was yeah. at, which, and it's you know, I'm a United Methodist pastor at United Methodist campus ministry. Um, we United Methodists are this weird bridge between like Catholics and free church hmm. folks, so. Uh, for somebody who's not a reverend, like ordained, which is terribly complicated in our world to be preaching in like the formal setting is a really big deal. Um, especially if there's communion and that sort of a thing. So the fourth time I preached in chemist ministry, I think I preached for like an hour and a half because I had like two things I wanted to say and also ended up sharing my testimony. And it was terribly, terribly long. Um, it was surprising for someone who's surrounded by preaching as much as I was that nobody ever sat down and said, Hey, listen, this is what you need to do. I was going to ask that. I was going to ask that. Yeah. So, um, so your dad or other kind of mentors in your life, um, did, when was the first time someone gave you some constructive feedback? It was after that hour and a half long. Okay. Two sermons. And it was, it was Scott Wright. It was my boss there. Um, I think I was just too, uh, hard headed to ask my dad what I should do. Okay. 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 Yeah, man. Hour and a half sermons. It's a, it's a it's a very there's a thin line between a very long sermon and like a hostage situation. You know, it's, it's horrible. Everyone is just there, and yeah. you know they they can't leave. And there's this kind of sense of like I I I I should stay. Um, yeah. Uh, thankfully, in that context, what what normally happened on the weeks was much more of a dialogical thing to where you were there, there was a talking going on for an hour, hour and 15 minutes, but it was a lot of back and forth and everything. So I, I, I but yeah, it was, it was horrendous. I have it somewhere recorded and it was, I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Did they have to flip the tape over halfway through? <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was long enough ago where it might've actually been on cassette tape. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I, I really learned a lot when I got to seminary and I, I was able to work and the reason I, I mean, it's my ministry career. So, so backwards, I went to seminary because I wanted to work for this guy named JD Waltz, who's now the editor in chief of Seedbed Publishing. And he, he told me the only jobs he had to offer were student worker jobs. So I had to be a student to work for him. So I decided to go to seminary to work for this guy. Okay. Get into massive debt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. But but he he's the one who really he's, he's a poet. He's a writer. He's a great preacher. Um, he's a storyteller, and he did a fantastic job uh, helping me understand how I preached. He was patient, and he was encouraging. I think that's the biggest thing in in these preaching relationships is especially the first couple of times you get to mentor someone in preaching, you try to turn them into a little you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
and 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 JD did a fantastic job at knowing me well and I'm saying, hey, why don't you try this? And and that sort of thing. So I was lucky. Yeah, what a gift. Yeah. Well, well, following on from that, like so like under the influence of JD and and others, like how have you grown as a preacher? Uh, from those uh, experiences and maybe put it another way, like what are the practices that you've stopped and started uh, in the decades that have followed? Yeah. So I remember, you know, leaving seminary, this was 12, 13 years ago, thinking like, okay, I'm good at this. And I, I know what I'm doing. I've done this enough and a lot by then. Um, and after like the third or fourth week at my first church, where I was a preacher. Um, There's this glazed over look in people's eyes. And that's when I had this realization. And I thought like, I'm leaving this environment where, I mean, you had tiny country. I'm not joking. I, I, I joke and I exaggerate a lot, but I'm not joking this. You had churches that did not have indoor plumbing in central Kentucky, like still outhouse based and had folks with PhDs from Ivy Leagues as their preacher every Sunday. Um, and so it was, and so I leave there, go to your typical Methodist church. So high steeples, robes, like all the fancy stuff, and realize that they had a lower level of, not lower, but their understanding of scripture wasn't as, as heightened there was all these things they weren't used to. And that's where I had to realize, okay, context matters a lot in preaching. Mm, yeah. Um, of course. And, and not being this traveling preacher of sorts or this, this, or a solid fill in kind of person. But that's where I began learning that, you know, inviting people into things matters a lot. Um, and that there has to be a level of, of desire because I still do think that that whole holding people captive from years ago, <laughs> that hour and a half long sermon sticks out. Um, but I also began to learn so much then about context and what does it mean to discern the things that God is asking for this congregation to go through and to learn? Like, what is the thing that happens during that sacred moment of of preaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and I began to, to learn, to realize that the conversations I was having with people on a Tuesday morning over coffee or this, or this, or this, all these other things really begin to inform what folks actually need to hear about and what God might be asking you to do rather than just seeing, um, preaching is this, uh, this Island that you have that nobody else can tell you what to do over. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think it, yeah. You know, I, I jotted down, um, you talked about like inviting people into things. Um, what, what, so how, how do you invite people into things and what does that, what does that mean in, in your context? Yeah. So I typically, you know, every, every preacher has their, their home bases almost. And, uh, my home bases are, uh, anything really weird in the old Testament. Okay. Yeah. Um, I wrote a I wrote I wrote a master's thesis on preaching revelation. So you get me anything apocalyptic, it's an easy place for me to be. Um, or a few years back, I went through this rabid, rabid deep dive into the gospels and only preached out of gospels for a year. And they're all narrative-based things. And I think that so, so much in scripture we come to it, or the average person comes to it with this with with we assume they know what's going on. Like my background, like I'm a preacher's kid. I grew up in church three times a week, sat under good preaching, all these things. Like I, I read way too much when the average person that's sitting in there has, like they, they might read scripture once a week. Like I, we, we, we reach a lot of nominally religious people, um, but in the Bible belt uh, where I am. And so there's a lot of assumptives about what Christianity means, about what scripture says. But a lot of times those are just that assumptives. And so I think that inviting people in that store, I think sometimes that's setting the stage. That's helping them realize, hey, these are the things that are going on. Uh, these are the these are the external cultural pressures that are being applied here. Um, these are some of the emotions that 
that you go through and that they go through. And so typically in my preaching, I spend a solid third of messages really just kind of setting the scene to, to where these aren't just these figures or characters or stories or lessons that live on some different plane of existence. But these are real people going through real things. And this is how the living God speaks to them and challenges them to live in a different world. Yeah. Yeah. So helping people to see that it's, um, yeah, that there's some kind of continuity between these, these ancient stories and our contemporary situation. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's been a thread of mine for, if I had a single thread that has just always just grown and grown and grown over the last, um, 10 or 15 years, it's been that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hey, what, what, what was the the result of like your deep dive year into the gospels or, or maybe like what prompted it? And then after yeah. spending a year uh, preaching only the gospel narratives, like what, what did you learn? Yeah. Well that, so I don't, I've been thinking about it for a couple of years and I would, I would ask preacher friends that are like, Hey, listen, how crazy would this be? Um, Cause normally I'm, I'm not a, uh, I'm real. I really want to preach through an entire book, like super, super long one day. Uh, I just haven't felt like I'm in the situation where that's 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 kind of that called out thing. But what a lot of it boiled into is I had was building out these teaching threads and series down, and I realized, okay, but half these ones I have in my deck are all gospel based. But then encountering people, like I said, I'm in the deep south mm-hmm. that we're culturally extremely religious but people don't know who Jesus is and they don't know they, there's a lot of assumptives that are there. And I began thinking like, you know, I think we just need to take a year. Like if we say this is who we follow, the least we can do is take a year to just hear from him. And so I, a few years before that I did, I took 12 weeks to go through the Sermon on the Mount. And that was a big deep dive. That's a different thing for me. I mean, I normally, I like to find these two or three chapter <laughs> big arcs and, and just yeah. kind of get that down into 30 minutes. Uh, but the Sermon on the Mount thing went well. And I realized I'm just going to go for it. Like we're going to be in this critical time as a church. Um, for the last nine years, I've served a church that I planted. We were leading into a lot of things. And I was like, okay, the least we can do is just do this. So like we went through, a, we, we did a bunch of parables. Um, we did a, uh, I think four or five weeks on anxiousness in the gospels. Um, that was, that was really, really big. Um, we talked about Jesus interactions, the uh, seven signs in John and just kept like layering and layering and layering on. And I, I feel like now it was a pretty critical time in the church's uh, background because you spend a year um and then the church also, which I was thankful for, because I think this is a big part of the story. Um, they really began to get the understanding of, you know, got Matthew, Mark and Luke. And then you've got John, mm-hmm. this kind of very different thing. So it was, it was, I mean, it was, it was three years ago, I think. Um, what was wilder was while I was doing that, I also made the decision to just read the gospels as much as possible. And so every month would take one gospel. So I, I and, and just, See how many times I could read it. Not for like some. I'm, I'm a little obsessive. If you you've, you know this by now, we've been I've, internet friends. I for know a while. this. Yes. Yeah. Um. Just because I wanted to, to to keep on reading, keep on reading, keep on reading, keep on reading it, and I realized like I could probably spend the rest of my career preaching just out of the Gospels, um, because I think what Jesus invites us into is so radically different from what our life is now. Yeah. And it's just the best thing. Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful yeah invitation and yeah. Um, odd, oddly a a challenge to some of us too you know like yeah uh, yeah we're we're Christians we're you know we're we're Christ centered preachers um, so let's preach about the life of Christ his yeah. life his death his resurrection yeah yeah um, let's do it yeah yeah well, it, was, I, it was a cool year. Yeah, I'm actually about to start uh, next Sunday, actually, a um, eight-week series in the Beatitudes. Um, so my ears oh, perked up. Yeah. My ears perked up as I as I heard you say that. So I might hit you up yeah. offline about um, some advice on that. We did yeah. a topical thing um, through Lent um, on the seven deadly sins. And yeah. then I thought, like, hey, what a, what a great thing to do 
to do, you know, where yeah. sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And let's do a yeah. longer series on, you know, life in the that. kingdom of King, of King Jesus. Yeah. 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 That'd be cool. I hope so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll get back to you and let you know if it was as cool as I thought. Um, yeah. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about that. Um, well here, so, uh, you know, you mentioned we've been, we've been internet friends um, and it's, it's largely been one, one way because for years um, I've been listening to you um, with your productive, uh, uh, productive pastor podcast. It was actually, I think one of the first uh, podcasts that I, that I actually ever found uh, once I discovered what a podcast was. I, I, I listened to, you know, I, I always subscribe to churches for their sermons. And, and then I, I, I remember actually kind of where I was when I like, um, uh, found in the, the, you know, the podcast app, like, Oh wait, there's like, there's these other, there's like shows of like Christians just talking about things and it's not a sermon. Oh, and this guy just talks about like how to manage your week as a pet. Wow. That's great. And so I, I found it and, um, yeah, I, I listened to to most of them, and then all of a sudden it went silent, and it's been kind of kind of coming back. But I I think that that you're the first non sermon based podcast I ever even subscribed to. So I'm that's... really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I started Productive Pastor in 2013, maybe. 2012, somewhere in there, um, I was podcasting, had a show with two good friends from seminary called The Threshing Floor. Okay. And we were doing that, and I was in ministry. I was an associate pastor, and I knew what I was going to do next. And in Methodist, Methodist world's weird. Um, I didn't have much to do, and I was getting really bored. Oh, okay. And the way that I'm wired... I like wait, wait I, those positions exist. <laughs> oh yeah, well they, they, they did ten years ago. Okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, there's not a, there's not going to be an associate pastor in my conference next year. So, but uh, well, I was I I knew what I was going to do next, and I was super excited, stoked about going to to start a church, and um, I just was an interesting season. And it's a lot of stuff I've been talking about this current season on Productive Pastor is like you, there's things that give you energy in life and making margin for those is a very healthy thing to do. So I had, this is early days of my early days. This is, uh, I mean, it's Twitter, 2012, 2013. And I was always just kind of sharing these things on Twitter and had a bunch of, a bunch of friends like, Hey, you need to do a podcast about that. Cause they knew I already was a, a, a very comfortable digital stuff. And so I jumped off and I thought, I was like, okay, I'll do this for like 10 episodes. It'll be fun. And then it took off like crazy. And so over the course of five years, we did about a hundred episodes. Um, maybe a quarter of them were interviews. And then 75% was just kind of deep dives into one thing. And then um, I call it my party trick, but I almost had a stroke, which was a lot of fun. Um, and I, Productive Pastor kind of already started pod fading before then. But after that happened, and I talked about this on one of those pre-episodes this current season. Yeah. I just deleted everything. I noticed. Yeah. Because I was getting, I still have it all. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I, I was still getting 15, 20 emails a week from people asking questions about stuff. And I was like, okay. It was also a radically spiritual formative time about identity and that sort of a thing. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to, just to nip this in the bud, had a couple of pastor friends that we had a handshake deal. If they started to see me productive pastoring, they were going to give me some grief until the time was right. And this summer I started praying about it. And one of them even called and he said, you know, I think this world needs productive pastor again. And so took the time to just think about it and come at it. Cause also if you're, if you listen at first round, I was like super hustle oriented, like get things done, get things done, get things done. Yes. And it was a, it was a, it was a broken thing. I'll be, I'll just be honest. Um, I think I had to do that. I had to stop it and had to come back because in the ministry space we're in now, especially post COVID, you know, people aren't talking about like the, the health and well being of pastors, but also how, if this is our identity, if this is our call, this should be giving us life. And so what does it mean for us to have a much more of a holistic understanding of our job and not so much creating margin to do more, which mm -hmm. was definitely first era productive pastor, but saying, okay, no, this is enough. Like I'm going to do this well. 
I'm going to do this in a way, a way that keeps me healthy and keeps my me health, healthy spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, relationally, this sort of thing. Um, but I'm also going to leave the margin open for, uh, for when ministry just becomes ministry. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, just to put it kind of like bluntly or directly, like what is your new definition of what a productive pastor is? So I, I'm still working on that, but I can tell you what I do know is I almost changed the name when I came back, but we had like the private, the, the Facebook community with a bunch of folks. The, the name recognition was, was just too solid still um, to, 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 to drive it. Um, but I think that what it really is, is about understanding what's the most valuable thing that you can be doing right now. And to not just get caught up the needles. Like my, like I talked before, my, my dad's at a big church. Um, and I've said this before a lot. You've probably heard me say it. You know, we look at larger churches sometimes and we're like, oh, they have so much more. They have so much more. They have so much more. Well, larger churches have large church problems. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like, and, and when, when my church of 150 people has a bad financial month, you know, we're down like $1,200. You know, when a really, really large church has a bad financial month, they're down like 75,000. They still have the things that, and I've been blessed to work in large churches, large ministries, this sort of thing. The thing that they have is the time to be strategic. And they, they're able to focus. And so I think that a lot of like what being a productive pastor means to me now is having a really high level of personal awareness and realizing our own agency to do what God is calling us to do. And then to be responsible with the things on the edges that might seek to tempt or destroy us in our time. Yeah. And, and I, and I don't want to be um, hopefully reductionistic and I, yeah. am, I, you know, I want to, you know, honor the memory of, you know, the podcast that I listened to 10 years ago, you know, but it, yeah. it, it felt like, I guess, you know, there's a lot of kind of like life hacks, time management techniques, um, you know, and, and, and stuff that I, you know, that I benefit from and that I need. And it's good to hear people talk about, you know, using, you know, how to make a spreadsheet or the value of this and this and this. And, and it's kind of its latest incarnation is like, you know, how, how do we be healthy? How do we lead out of health? Um, and, and I, yeah, I think it still is about productivity, I guess, maybe, I don't know, like more like the kind of productivity of like bearing fruit rather than creating, margin or whatever yeah and there's still like you know we this first season is separated like first half is more theory second half is practice um and the, the second half is gonna get I mean, it's gonna get pretty deliberate um I, I i value action still a lot but we have to know why we're acting first and then i think that the whole idea of hustle culture uh i used to have a t-shirt that i made that said all aboard the hustle bus i it was a phrase i used um but I think you can look at just what the whole productivity realm right now is talking about, how dangerous hustle culture is and how what burnout looks like. And, and it's there. So it's, yeah, you can be reductionistic absolutely about it because um, there still is, we get things done. But I think the biggest thing is, you know, how do we create a level of personal awareness to this is who I am? Because a lot of times pastors end up having to be generalists. And I think that's what burns us out. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a very like like on on this podcast anyway. We focus on one aspect of pastoral ministry, and and yeah. it allows us to do a deep dive. And I'm kind of oriented in such a way where I I really like this. I could talk about this all day. I, yeah, you know. Um, but there, from time to time, we I really make sure to mention like there's so much more to to pastoring yeah. than just this fun part. <laughs> you know, yeah. There's a whole lot of other yeah. stuff. Yeah. But if you also think about it, like I, and I've, I'm working on something that has this data in it right now. But I ask a question over productive pastor community last week about how much of your time do you spend doing sermon preparation a week? Mm-hmm. And at most churches, I would be willing to say like, of normal size churches that your payroll is the largest part of your budget. And then your pastors or your preachers payroll is most likely going to be the biggest chunk of your payroll budget. And what I went and, and what people self-reported back in that group, I had over 50 of them, I think, say that 50% of their work week is their sermon preparation or Sunday morning time. So in theory, like one of the largest budgetary action items in your church is preaching. Mm-hmm. But then how often do preachers back burner that? 
Hmm. And hmm. unless they're intentional about it, the preaching gets the margins because the urgency and the reactivity of ministry yeah. steals from that thing. And just to be clear, are you saying that's a good thing or that's a bad thing? No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, I think that, I mean, I think that the teaching of the word is one of the most powerful things that's out there. Mm-hmm. And that's just to, I get called a pragmatic sometimes and I'm all right with that because I am, I am pretty pragmatic. But like, if this is the thing that a, we know we're called to do that's so important. And this is the thing that people are sacred. I mean, if there's this budget item, that's this much then how are we being faithful stewards to our congregations? And how are we being faithful to our call, faithful to spirit, if this thing that should be one of the most important things for us mm-hmm. ends up getting 15-minute bursts throughout the week, and then we become unfaithful to our family and our loved ones on Saturdays as we try to hustle out something? Yeah, yeah. like that. So I think a lot of product is like, okay, how do we make the time and defend these handful of things that to us are extremely important. And if you're in a teaching ministry, your teaching should be one of those things. Right, right. Well, here's here's a here's a confession to you and to, you know, the other four listeners to this podcast. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so I, I just said this to the, um, at an elders meeting last night, um, but like, so Seven Deadly Sins, um, just did that series. I actually preached that series seven years ago and it went really well. And I've always kind of said, I'd love to do that again. And, um, and I've been at this church for, uh, 15 plus years. Um, so, um, you know, it's like, well, people have heard it before, but seven years is a long time. The church has changed a lot since then and everyone forgot it anyway, you know? So I thought I'd do it again. And I, I really resolved to like, I don't even want to look at my old notes. I just want to start, start fresh. And I'm coming out of some, you know, especially the past five or six weeks have been insane, you know, um, just a whole, a whole lot of issues, a whole lot of challenges. Um, you know, I'm I'm traveling a bit uh, once more, which uh, you know that was paused for a while, um, and so uh, all those kind of things. Um, I'm involved in some kind of like Ukraine relief stuff as well, and organizing a lot of things here. In uh, I live in Europe, and so there's just all this stuff. And so essentially, I basically didn't start sermon prep each week until about like 4 a.m. on Sunday morning, and it was my sermon prep involved pulling up my notes from seven years ago. Yeah. Updating and then and then going. And that was like this really uh, uns- unsustainable. Um, and I think I think I gave myself permission or it, it worked out to where I would, you know, take all those extra appointments or have lunch with this person or this or this or this. Because, well, at the end of the day, I got those notes. And if I need to, I could I could go back to. And then the first week that I did that, I was like, oh, nobody noticed, you know, or oh, you know. And and then, then because of the first week, it kind of set a precedent for the next seven weeks. And yeah. so I kind of said that to the elders and said like, hey, starting from now on, I got to preach new sermons. <laughs> so I, this yeah. is going to take up a whole lot of my week, whereas I've had the luxury of essentially neglecting it or ignoring it or postponing it for yeah. the past seven weeks. So yeah. How, so that how was that tough for you? Not like f- philosophically, but like actually just pulling out notes and be able to get in that moment to just to, to to preach that again. Uh kind of. I mean, I mean, there's kind of a, a really bad feeling from it, where it's just like you know, saying to my wife, like you know, over like I'm gonna do it again, honey. You know, yeah. <laughs> so there's kind of a, a guilt of it. Um, but then, I mean, if also to be, I'm being honest here they were, it was a really good series. Yeah, <laughs> It was a yeah. good series seven years ago. It was, it's a good series. Now the content is good. Um, and I'm, I, I put a whole lot of work into it seven years back. And so I guess I'm benefiting from it, but it's not the the best feeling, if you know what yeah. I mean. Like technically, I, I, a lot of times I'll be asked to go somewhere to speak and people will say, Hey, can you come? It'd be four messages. Da, 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 da. Can you do this series that we listen to on the oh, podcast? Yeah. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's cool. That'd be really super easy. And oh my, it technically it's so difficult. Hmm. Like I've got all the slides. I saved yeah. them all. I mean, yeah. and it's just like, I cannot, like I said, for me, it's not a philosophical issue. It's I technically just struggle so much to jump back into old content and to even know where I'm going with it. Oh, well, you're maybe a man of more integrity than I am because it's not oh, for no. me. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It would, no, it's just, I, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's it technically it's, I've, the times I've done it it's so difficult. I'd much rather have like I have some things I speak on at other places. Okay, but I always leave like a really broad structure, and I'm gonna go in and rework it for that place. Okay, um, 
but yeah, I'm, I applaud you for able to do that technically. Cause I just, like I said, technically I just can't, I get so lost trying to do it. I can't do it. Yeah. Well, there was no time for anything. Uh, anyway, sorry. That's, that's kind of, <laughs> kind of a tangent, but yeah. Um, okay. Hey, thanks for that. Thanks for hearing my confession. Um, yeah, I loved it. <laughs> loved it. I'm here for um, it. Hey, so, uh, you, you had mentioned like how I, I read a, I read a, a brief article from you and, and I want to ask you here again. Um, like, so, um, during these past two years, you know, that we've, we've referenced already, um, you, you have written a little bit about, I know you're even continuing to think this through, but like, how has these past two years of COVID and lockdown and everything else, um, how has that impacted the way that you, I guess, preach individual sermons or then even think about like a block of sermons, um, after what we've gone through? So, um, I think a couple, a couple different things. Um, my bachelor's degree is in sociology, and there's a lot of things I will tell people that I'm conservative-ish, okay. and they'll kind of look at me funny, and I'll say, I, I, I will agree with every single conservative theological statement, but I will get there sociologically. Oh. Not mm. that's, that's kind of how my mind functions. Okay. So I'm always looking back at people's behaviors and that sort of thing, and I think that to look at behavior over the last couple of years has been interesting. You look at just all of the massive things. Uh, social scientists talk about COVID being ex- an accelerator. Um, I think like many things that to you are normal in Europe are, are now happening in the Bible Belt and people are flipping out, but they're flipping out, but there's still like massive churches of thousands of people that meet every week. And so like the practice hasn't changed, but all that kind of stuff. So I think about so much theologically. So I think a couple of things shifted to happen. Number, number one, I think almost every single church learning to live stream over the course of a couple of weeks was really interesting. Sure. Um, we did not stream before COVID. Like I had a, I had a thing against it. Like Is I theologically, right? yeah. Cause you're so tech oriented. I'm sure yeah. you could do a great job. Oh, it'd be easy. I mean, I, I worked in video production for, for years. It, it wouldn't be difficult at all, but I was like, no, no, we can't do it well. And if we can't do it well, it's going to be bored. It's just, no, we're not going to do it. Um, but I also had a thing about that, that inside gathering, cause you know, we consume podcasts very different than we consume a live stream church service. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, but we had to jump into it. And so I think it was interesting. The first, we talked about captive sermons. I normally am a 25 minute preacher. The first Sunday back, our first lockdown was 12 weeks, which I know is crazy short for how some people were locked down for years. Yeah. Um, my first Sunday back, we had to completely change every single thing about our temporary space we were in because of live streaming, all these sorts of things. Um, I preached a message, and I think I preached for 50 minutes because I was so off my game because I'd been used to communicating directly to a camera. And then like a lot of churches began asking questions about, okay, do we have some sort of a hybrid worship experience? Because like, how long did you how long were you preaching straight to a camera during lockdown? Uh, the bulk of two years, yeah. really. I mean, yeah, Ireland had the longest lockdown of Europe. Um, yeah. And Europe is longer than America. So yeah. yeah. Quite a long time. Yeah. Did you, how long did it take you to shift your teaching style to a camera? I mean, well, I mean, I, I did it um, starting yeah. the first week. How long did it take to get good, good at it? Yeah. Or uh, I don't know if I ever did, but... Um, yeah, I think, I think I had a shift, I suppose, after a couple of months when I stopped standing up in my son's bedroom with my little portable pulpits and like, and preaching. And then I started sitting on the couch and, um, and I think that was kind of a, a, of a change. It's It's like, yeah, people are watching this on their couch. I should be sitting on my couch as well. Yeah. So that's, that's maybe when that took place. Yeah. So I, I've got, and I accidentally didn't realize I did it. And this is post is probably going to go live today. But so I got COVID in January this year. Okay. And a late adopter, I see. (laughs) Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I held out, man. Finally, (laughs) it finally got to the house. Um, But both my wife and I got COVID and I already had the sermon done and we didn't get very sick at all. We're boosted, facts boosted, the whole nine yards. So, but I'm also, I'm on YouTube a bunch. So I came in and everybody else in my church was fine. We were just sick and we tested positive on a Friday. So it was too late to change everything. I couldn't find somebody to preach. So I just came up to the office and I pretended it was a YouTube video and I shot the sermon video and we've got a big, huge screen. I mean, America Bible belt, you know, 
And so they showed the sermon like that. And then about a month and a half ago, I went back to a preach at a former church and I ended up using the same message. Okay. And I realized like, oh my goodness, I've got this message preached in front of a couple hundred people and preached YouTube style to a camera. Um, and I'm going to post both of them and just be like, okay, this is because I think, but if we look at why are we preaching what we're preaching? Yeah. Um, it's huge to see the difference of, you know, there's that phrase that the medium is the message. Yeah. So the way that we preach is a thing. And I think it's, in, I, I, I'm going to answer your preaching COVID question in two parts. I'm almost done with the first part is, you know, the one, so, so social media has been the thing I think that's made this world such a dumpster fire. It's just, it's, it's, it just accentuated things like crazy. What's wild is if you look at how much YouTube grew during the pandemic and you look also at YouTube is a prime, is now a primary content engine for a lot of people. Like I don't really watch TV anymore. I watch YouTube constantly. Um, but YouTube is also a place where people actually change opinions and change minds and they go there to find answers to questions and this sort of a thing. And so I think that like for every single church now to be live streaming with their iPhone set up on a tripod three feet away from the pulpit, like there's some bad live streams out there still. Um, you know, asking the question, okay, why are you preaching? Why are you streaming? And if people are going online to learn these things, and especially from a, from a missiological or evangelistic perspective, uh, how can we be preaching and looking at our our medium to save the best time? That sort of a thing. So I think that whole spectrum of there are a lot of people who deeply need to know Jesus, and they're probably not going to watch your church's live stream, but your message might really speak out to them. But what I found out is we can typically communicate something a lot more. We can we can communicate it quicker, and we can communicate it significantly more inviting if you're watching it on a screen when it's not just a live stream message pulpit. We're not all Andy Stanley and can make that look good and have the church budget for it. So I'm posting both of those sermons just kind of like, hey, listen, tell me what you think because this is what I'm thinking. The second thing about COVID preaching is this, um, and it's more, just more so understanding the realm of just kind of like our secular age that we're living in now. And I went on a thread about six months ago where I just started asking like, Hey, like what's because I'm in the, I'm in the deep South Bible belt, Christian subculture. It's huge. It's massive. All that thing. And apparently whatever we're doing right now is not working because we're still seeing broken people and lost people and people do stupid stuff and all this kind of things. If Jesus is the greatest thing in the world, if the local church is the, the greatest hope for the world, all of this, what's going on that we're still seeing these things happen and just kind of threw me in a rabbit trail and I went back into the gospels. Like, how is Jesus preaching? Like, how did Jesus, what did Jesus do something different? And realizing that, um, you know, so much of what Jesus did in the way he preached was he was world building. Hmm. Hmm. He, he was, he had his miracles and he yeah. had the miracles that show up in three different ways. He's showing his control over the natural world, the supernatural world and the physical world. So, um, he's, he's calming seas. He's making uh he's feeding 5,000, that sort of thing. He's casting demons out of people. And then he's healing the sick. He's, I mean, blind, see, lame, walk. So he's showing his control over the cosmology of that world. And then his preaching and his teaching is, is literally inviting them to see something different. And, uh, you know, it shows up all throughout the synoptics. Like they were amazed at his authority. Like that, like what did he, what, so what was he doing? So it began me thinking, I think in a post-COVID world, as far as evangelism is concerned, because you have to be asking the question, um, it's that old John Chandler, Sherman Smith question. What is the role of preaching in your context? Yeah, yeah. And old John if, Chandler. Oh man, I miss that show. I like me his too. new show. Me I like too. his new show. But um, if the purpose of your Sunday time is primarily evangelistic, I think that in our world now, in a post-COVID world, disruption is the order of the day. Um, a lot of the the cultural uh, malaise that we feel, I, I, I talk about it constantly, and it's on my stack next to me, but I read this book through COVID, The Leadership, God's Agency, and Disruptions. Um, the big question they were asking is, you know, modernity said we could control things. And clearly we failed at our ability to control things. And that's why folks just seem all this abrupt. And so instead what we needed, what, what does it mean for the church to rather than say, 
this is what God is doing, and we're going to do it, to take on a posture of saying, God, we trust for you to show us what you are already doing without us and in spite of us, and you invite us into. And so I think that for me, where my preaching has changed, um, like I went hardcore trying to like argue and fight against some things in quarter one of 2021. And they were, they were fun to prep. Some folks enjoyed them, but I don't think it actually changed that much. Instead of saying, hey, you're really tired, you're worried, you're anxious, get this, 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 this. Let's talk about what God's already doing around us. Um, and I think becoming comfortable, and I, Jesus' world building, he's, he's showing the spiritual authority and power to do these things. And if we know that the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead now lives inside of us. Yeah. What does it mean for us to, to, to realize, hey, I'm not going to hit you over the head with propositions because that's not worked for the last 500 years. Let's look at how Jesus is challenging us and offering to us a different world. And we just need to listen to him because he invites us to come alongside of him. So that's, I think, this kind of preaching the COVID age. It's We look at how we're doing that. I do think that um, if you want to reach people online and you have the ability and the resources, I don't know if live streaming a 35-minute sermon is going to accomplish that. Um, I think investing in podcasting is huge because that's a that medium is different. Yeah. Um, I think if 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 you have the particular call and ability and skill set to look at what digital evangelism looks like, I think pursuing that. Uh, Trey Van Camp, do you watch him on YouTube? I don't. Like he's he vlogs. He's a pastor. He his he's solid. I don't have the time to do what he does. Okay. Yeah. But that that thing. But I think really, just about, you know, Jesus is preaching was just unfurling the kingdom in front of people. Mm. And that's been the thing for the last few months I've been thinking about and, and leaning into heavily. Yeah, I love that that phrase, world building. I've, I, you know, I've heard the phrase before in regards to John Wick or, you know, all these films, yeah. you know, like, oh, it's, yeah. you kind of see this world that they exist in. Um, yeah. I love I love the idea of, I guess, yeah, the, the ministry of Jesus and then the preaching um, that he he does and we should follow in kind of shows what life can be like in this alternative reality that yeah. is actually real and that we live in already. And so let's, yeah. let's exist within this world. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's Augustine city of God kind of stuff. And then there's a, I don't have it. Um, I don't, I think I packed it already. Barry Harvey teaches at Baylor has this book from, I don't know, 20 years ago. If you can find a copy, I went for, I looked for a copy on Amazon. It was outrageously expensive, but, um, Barry Harvey has this tiny little book that's called Another City. And it's um, it was a then modern riff off of the city God, but it was about the church being that Latin phrase, alternative civitas, hmm. um, hmm. that really, really is influential about just kind of the church is a standalone outpost of the kingdom and the power of the Holy Spirit emanates from it. And like Dallas Willard calls the kingdom of God, like your range, the range of your effective will. Uh, and so I was like, that's the thing. So what does it mean to to take on that kind of more old school mentality? No, we're a beacon to the power of the spirit and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So how does our preaching do that and not live on just this island outside of our missiology? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well thanks for that. Um, I, as the as a final question, I was going to ask, like, you know, what are things you're trying to currently grow in? But it, it seems as if you might have just answered that question. Am I, yeah, am I right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Well, then here's yeah. the backup final question. And I, and, I, <laughs> and I warned you in advance about this. But so, yeah, you're the first Methodist ever on this show. You know, after 220 episodes, we finally have talked to a Methodist. Um, yeah. Is there something from from the treasure trove of Methodism that you would like commend to us, low church um, uh, people out here? What 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 should we be learning from from your tradition, or what would you commend to us? So I think that um, I think the sermons of John Wesley are fantastic. Ah, I, I got some right here. <laughs> yeah, funny um, enough. Yeah, yeah. I think that, I think Wesley's sermons are beautiful. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, there's a couple of dis, and it kind of goes back to the leadership, God's agency, and disruption. I think Wesley was having to do ministry in a disruptive age. Yeah. Okay. Um, a lot of secular sociologists will say the reason that Britain never went into a bloody revolution like France, these other places was because of the ministry of Wesley and the Methodist movement. 
because it combined people of multiple socioeconomic classes in the same place together inside of discipleship systems. Um, I think Wesley's A Plain Account of Christian Perfection is really good. Um, I think that John Wesley's sermon number two, The Almost Christian, that's a sermon that got him thrown out of Oxford. Um, it will convict <laughs> it will convict out of you. Um, but I think it completely speaks into our age, especially for people who are in a context where cultural Christianity is a struggle. That that sermon number two, the almost Christian. Um, you know, we look at the original, we think of the the woodcut paintings of the Wesley brothers, these old guys with their white wigs and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. We forget that movement was started off by a bunch of misfit 20-year-olds who wanted to follow Jesus and weren't satisfied with uh, how they were being challenged. And uh, I think, yeah, num- sermon number two, the almost Christian. I'll make sure that it's the link is in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. So in the, in the, um, the city where I live, uh, Cork, Ireland, um, there is, there's actually a plaque, um, in the center of the city and it's, uh, you know, John Wesley preached here. Um, and this was immediately followed by the Cork Wesleyan riots and, and he was, yeah, he was chased and, and, you know, I could follow the route of where he was chased. And then he found a friend and he stayed in his house and people were tearing off the roof of his house. So yeah, he's, there's, he's a pretty calm dude, but yet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's stories of, uh, there's, there's stories of, of Methodist preachers. I've got them. Um, it's these old volumes from the seventies that are all about his, 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 his itinerant preachers during the movement. But one guy was talking about how he was preaching. People were lighting like pine tar knots and throwing them at him while he's preaching. Um, this is, I mean, yeah, I mean, all sorts of horrible stories. You got to realize like how the gospel confronts society at that level. Um, it's like Paul, when they're like, you're, you're destroying our empire uh, at Ephesus. Like our, 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 our entire yeah. economy has changed. It's like what happened with all these little dudes preaching, riding on horseback that so threatened refined people in Great Britain yeah. in the 1750s. Yeah. Yeah. To chase him out of town like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so thank you very much. We're, we're honored to have, you know, our first Methodist. I hope you feel at home in our little <laughs> community. And, uh, you know, we want to be learning from, yeah, from the best yeah. of your tradition. And, uh, well, yeah. I love it. I'm, I, I listen to every episode. And so I'm just, it was an honor to get that email from you a couple months back. Ah, okay. Well, thanks so much, Chad. I appreciate your time. And, uh, for the listeners, I hope that this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. Well, that was great stuff. Thanks to Chad for sharing your wisdom. Uh, as I mentioned, I've been learning from Chad for for a long time, and it was great to have uh, a long conversation uh, back and forth. And I hope that it benefited you guys as you were listening and learning along. I just want to also, in addition to inviting you in October 14th and 15th to Boise, um, also want to invite you to our Expositors Collective private group that we have on Facebook. If you go to facebook.com slash groups slash expositors collective, there is a group. I think there's like, I don't know, 370 people in there now. And we all just kind of geek out on preaching together. We discuss the latest episodes. We ask questions. We get answers. We, we have just real nerdy preacher conversations. And we want you there. So if you are still on Facebook, well, then uh, do request to be added to the Expositors Collective private community. Okay, I hope that you're subscribed to this podcast because next week we have an episode like none other. Uh, We have a long and engaging conversation about ways and means to understand and interpret Genesis chapter one and then the implications that can have for our teaching and preaching ministries. I hope you have your thinking hats on uh, because next week is going to be an episode that you don't want to miss. I'm going to leave you with a clip from Dr. Greg Davidson and Kenneth Turner uh, speaking with me about their latest book together, The Manifold Beauty of Genesis 1. 
Yeah, for me, uh, I approach these issues um, from my church context and my teaching context. I, I, I'm in the uh, pretty conservative part of evangelical Christianity. And so I'm coming from that context, um, dealing with issues that my students are addressing or people in my church. Um, and one of the things, a couple of things I think that where this kind of hits for me is similar to Greg, it's it, ironically in a, in a debate that is trying to defend the Bible, I often think the Bible is being sidelined or there's just a very simple, flat way of but the questions we're asking about the Bible are a set of questions that don't get into the richness of the Bible. So I felt like the Bible, especially coming from somebody who's immersed in ancient nursery literature and, and, and Hebrew culture and language, thinking there's a lot here in the Bible. Forget the science discussion. The Bible's being kind of sidelined. And then secondly, you know, as I'm trying to think of how do we promote unity and try to draw those lines of division, uh, I feel like there's times we need to, I often tell my students, we need to separate what's what I call the biblical theological question. That is, what is the truth? What is God's word saying? What is the Christian tradition? Versus what I call the pastoral question is, we know that good and godly people are going to disagree. So how do we decide what to do? Like in some ways, that might be the more important question, but the trickier question. How do we decide when to draw those lines of fellowship or disfellowship? And how do, we, how do we talk about something? How do we talk about God and the scriptures and these big ideas that we do agree on, even if we disagree on these other issues? How do you decide between what's primary issue and secondary? So that pastoral question has really driven a lot of my thinking and writing um, because I see it. I see it in front of me and my students. I see it in the people I go to church with. And so this becomes kind of an example of how to wrestle through that. And part of that, part of the strategy is to, hey, why not sideline to a degree the science and histor historical questions? Not to say they're unimportant, but they are secondary to the literary and theological issues. And why don't we, why don't we begin to unfold the ri richness of God's word? And maybe, just maybe, if we agree on that, then we can have a cup of coffee and discuss the other issues. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, if it comes down to a, a very clear yes or no question, do you take this literally or not? Um, and then that, that is such a simple way of looking at such a complex issue. And um, I'm, I'm currently in a seminary cohort with uh, Dr. Gary Bashirs, and he talks about this issue. And he says that it's so frustrating that he says one side says, well, we're the side that takes the Bible seriously. And, and he's like, Listen, it's complex. It's complicated. Right. There's a whole lot of things in play. And um, one one side is saying that we're the ones who are taking it seriously. And I think even through interacting with, with your book and looking at these kind of seven layers that you're talking about, um, uh, you, you have both taken Genesis 1 very, very seriously. And it was uh, good for my heart and good for my brain to be thinking through these. Yeah, well, and, and just in case any of your listeners are, are, are wondering, uh, we, we both, Ken and I, have approached the book and approached scripture with the understanding that it is the word of God, that it is true. Uh, and what we're called to do is to properly understand that truth. Sure. So when we're talking about the, 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 the richness and layers and, you know, listeners may be thinking, OK, that, that, that sounds interesting. What exactly does that mean? Yeah. Uh, you know, and are, are they inventing things? Am I going to read stuff that I've, that nobody's ever thought of before? Uh, nothing in the book is completely new to us. All right, we we are taking what we did was we we took the work of many biblically conservative scholars that were all affirming the truth and word of God. That in uh, you know in the various conversations. You know, they're, they're defending a particular view and trying to argue why it's the best view or the proper view against the others. And one of the things that we realize as we we're studying these is that the, the things that differentiate them, that make them incompatible with each other, are often just minor things that if you set those minor things aside, you realize these aren't competing views. These are complementary views. Right. That you right. can have multiple messages coming out of scripture 
that are kind of like tiles that they're they're actually uh, complementary and building a larger, richer, beautiful message that's not just monochromatic. <laughs>